Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. And this is Hold Your Fire, podcast by the International Crisis Group. We're delighted this week to be joined by Ivan Briscoe. Ivan is Crisis Group's long-serving Latin America director based in Bogota. Uh, he's been working for many years across Latin America. Welcome, Ivan. Thank you very much for the invitation and hello to our listeners from Colombia. So, Ivan, we hope to have with you a, a wide-ranging discussion on what the year ahead holds for Latin America how you see the main threats to the continent's stability in 2021. We'll talk about some big picture trends, and we'll also try to zoom in on some of the main uh, and most worrying political crises. But I wondered if you could start off by setting the scene with a, a sort of general overview. What are the big picture things that you and other crisis group colleagues are looking at in 2021? Well, we have our interests, we have our priorities, we're very concerned by security and stability in the region. But for Latin America as a whole, there is one dominant issue at the moment, and it's COVID. Uh, we've had a very rough December and January across the region, uh, particularly in Brazil and Mexico, but we've had spikes all across Latin America. And it's, you know, it's shining a really raw light on some of the fundamental problems in Latin American societies, which will then reflect, be reflected in political issues, in, in the demands of the public uh, later on. I just, you know, I think it's, it's important to bear in mind what we're talking about. These are over 600,000 deaths from COVID in Latin America. Millions have obviously been affected. And it tells a story about where Latin American development is. I mean, I mean, the general stage of economic and social development. We're living in a region 
which has huge cities, a very urbanized population, 80% living in big cities, uh, connected to all over the world through flights and transport, um, but at the same time with huge populations uh, working informally, therefore having to still go to work, whatever the lockdown or the quarantine measures which have been taken, living uh, often in you know, very cramped uh, conditions and with public services which unfortunately uh, you know, are not able to deal with the demands in health or education or in other areas. And this, is, and this is what we've seen. The result in Latin America is unfortunately an epidemic which has been very difficult to control and that has brought major economic hit. Latin America was suffered... Uh, Globally, I mean, in terms of the whole region, 8% drop in GDP last year. And between the health demands, which are being met with difficulty by the services, with the, the economic damage, and with, of course, all those ongoing sources of, of insecurity and instability, which you know we can talk about later, it's a very tricky time for the region. Ivan, could you tell us a little bit about the potential political implications of the pandemic? Crisis Group has written a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted the way criminal groups are behaving across parts of the region, especially in Central America and Mexico. We've also written about how the pandemic has fueled anger at the way governments have handled it, either anger against lockdowns or anger against failures to take it seriously enough. And then, as you say, there's the economic downturn that's looming, that this could play into some of the discontent that brought people onto the streets even before the pandemic. But how do you see, broadly speaking, the, the way that COVID's going to play out and how it's going to impact the region's politics? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Richard. The, the simple story is that it's going to make things worse. And that once the pandemic starts to relent a little bit, we're going to go back to that wave of, of protests, which we saw towards the end of 2019. Now, 2019 may seem like ancient history, you know, to, to a lot of listeners now. But let's remember what it looked like. I mean, living through that in Latin America, Ecuador, then Chile, then Bolivia, then Colombia, this sort of domino of huge protests for slightly different reasons in each case. But it really seemed like we had a massive wave of constant mobilization towards the end of that year. And then came the pandemic. Now, I mean, the easy thing to say, the straightforward thing to say, and in many ways, the truthful thing to say is that with all the economic damage done by the pandemic, combined with the, the sense that, you know, public services are not up to the job, there's going to be more protest at a certain moment. But, but there's no doubt that we're also seeing other, other things happening in the last year. It's notable how much homicides dropped in a number of countries across the region last year. Well, obviously, if people are being locked down, there are not the same opportunities to go out and commit murders. In certain cases, it was just a tiny, small drop, which was soon reversed. And that's what we saw in Central America. That's what we, well, we didn't even see any drop at all in Mexico. But Colombia last year registered its least violent year for half a century. Venezuela's murder rate, as far as we can gather, dropped by around about 30%. I mean, these are really big falls. So it's not that simple. Now, is it the lockdown just as being as a suppressant of violence? Or are we actually seeing a change in the nature of violence in, in the region? And I think when we look at Colombia, for example, where, where I'm based at the moment more closely, what we see is that the rates of urban violence have fallen notably, but violence continues in a very targeted, selective way in rural Colombia. On the other side, the greater story of, of political instability, if you like, well, I mean, that didn't go away last year, but it was very focused because obviously you couldn't have the constant mobilization of people in the streets. And for me, 
perhaps that there are two crucial issues which are going to determine whether we see a lot more of that sort of mobilization in the coming months or the coming year. I think one is the polarization in, in Latin American society. I mean, we are talking about really polarized electorates where we have populists of right and left. We have the battle between the sort of the evangelical conservatives, you like, the more progressive side, which has got worse and worse and more antagonistic uh, over recent years, obviously whipped up by social media to a degree, and obviously shaped as well by what's going on in Venezuela, which has played an incredibly important role in pulling those uh, those sides apart in, in the region. So that's going to be crucial to see whether, you know, the polarization can begin to be tamed by a different approach, particularly by the US in the region. And the other one, and, and I'll just plant it there, is more focused on two countries in particular, two countries which have suffered COVID worse than any others in the region, two countries run by populist presidents. Uh, I use that word carefully, one from the left and one from the right, uh, Brazil and Mexico, fundamentally big beasts in the region. And it's, you know, although they're relatively stable at the moment, there are major question marks over what will happen there. So, Ivan, you we were chatting the other day and you said something really interesting. I mean, you said many things that were interesting, but one of the very interesting things you said was that the region has seen populism on the left. Mm. Uh, so, obviously, Hugo Chavez some time ago, now his successor, Nicolas Maduro, that we'll talk about in a moment in Venezuela, Daniel Ortega in uh, Nicaragua. The region's also seen populism on the right with Jair Bolsonaro and now in Brazil. But you also said that it's increasingly seeing or it has seen populism in the centre. In other words, that politicians of all stripes are painting themselves as the true representatives of people, as the only path to fix the country's ills. Their rule is personalised. They rail against the establishment. But it's not just on the left and right. You also get politicians that are also kind of occupying the centre ground, but using these same populist techniques. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And are there any common threads that sort of explain why Latin America, if you think Latin America, is particularly prone to populism? I'll be honest, Richard, I, you know, that's a great question, although I've got to object to begin with to the use of the word populist, you know, putting a little academic hat on here. <laughs> what is a populist? Aren't all politicians populist? Don't all politicians try and give the general public something to get themselves voted? And, you know, I could find security populists, business populists, uh, social justice populists, all sorts of populists here in America, in North America, rather, in Europe as well. But so let's boil it down to the essentials. What does a populist do? And I'm coming at it from the Latin American perspective here. Rail against the establishment, as you said, that's absolutely fundamental. Uh, uh, you know, the, the backlash of the, uh, as it were, the oppressed majority against the exploitative elite. That's a basic story we find in all the cases of the supposed populist. And the other is the, the bond with the people. Not necessarily, you don't have to be messianic to be a populist, but it certainly helps. Um, and we have a very proud tradition in Latin America of, of such figures. I mean, you can, I could reel off the names. You know, we were obviously the foundational populist of the modern era, you might say, was, was Juan Domingo Perón in Argentina, who gave birth to a movement which still effectively runs the country to a large degree. But we can look, you know, elsewhere. We could look to Uribe, sort of populist from the right, in Colombia. And of course, then we've got Hugo Chavez, which is in many ways seen as the archetypal uh, populist in Venezuela, uh, or a more moderate, uh, slightly more progressive social justice based populist like Lula in Brazil or Cristina 
in, in Argentina, Evo Morales, a populist who tried to fundamentally change all the rules of the game of the country. You know, I mean, when people say populism is a bad thing, I would put Evo Morales in front of them and say, well, well, discuss. I mean, look at what Evo Morales did. Yes, he turned out slightly more authoritarian after 14 years in power. But he changed the way his country was governed. He changed the way the indigenous majority in his country uh, played a part in politics and the economy. And that was incredibly important. But you're right. I mean, the, the populists that we see at the moment are all over the shop because you can be against the establishment and have a bond with the people. But you can have many different reasons for that. The basis for Bolsonaro coming to power in Brazil was the discrediting of the establishment, the corruption which came through in all those incredibly powerful judicial investigations, the, the Lava Jato, Odebrecht, Petrobras, the, the, the corruption between the government and the legislature, all these levels at which you know people were milking the system. I mean, obviously, it's ironic that then Bolsonaro comes to power and he effectively closes down the biggest corruption investigation of them all because he says, well, now I'm here, there's no more corruption. And that's very similar to what Lopez Obrador says in Mexico. Now I'm here and I'm ruling from the top. We don't need all these anti-corruption institutions. I, I will make sure that the thing is clean. And that's the problem with populism uh, fundamentally. It, it depends on messianic rule. And in many cases, it depends on short-term thinking, giving the public what they want, whether it's money, whether it's security, whether it's a poorly built new school, so that you can say, well, you know, I've done what I said. They've got what they needed and then everything, everything will be solved. And of course, it isn't. I mean, often populists leave in a wake of economic disaster, unfortunately. And that's probably one of the main weaknesses. But I just want to say a quick word about Nayib Bukele in El Salvador because you brought him up. And he's a very interesting case because he's a populist of the center. And, you know, he brings together all the, the storylines behind you know, the birth or the rise of populism you like. I mean, El Salvador had a terrible civil war in the 1980s. You know, not everybody maybe listening to this will, will remember it, uh, what, what it was like at the time. But the, 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 it was a series of brutalities which went on for 10 years and ended with a peace accord which put the two warring sides, turned them effectively into political parties, and they ended up sharing power for over 20 years. By the end of which, the El Salvadorans were sick and tired of the political system, the way it was working, of democracy, of insecurity, of the failure to answer their problems. Bukele comes through, tries to break the two-party system, says, I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to have what they call here in Spanish, mesas de dialogo. We're not going to all get round the table and endlessly discuss our problems and solve nothing. I'm going to sort it out. And he's brought results in a very authoritarian fashion, but in security terms, he's brought results. Will it last? It's very difficult to say. Ivan, can I ask you to move to a case that you've raised as being relevant for the region as a whole? But so I wanted to ask you about sort of the regional implications of Venezuela and also the specific context of what's happening in the country itself. You listed Venezuela as being connected to both the existing polarization in the region, but also a polarizing debate. Um, where do you see this going in 2021? I mean, it's very good that you raised it. And I just do have to make a reference to the latest news on Venezuela, which was the government of Colombia has agreed to give temporary residency papers to all uh, Venezuelan migrants in, in the country who have arrived, I think, um, before the end of January this year. I mean, it's going to be difficult to work out. That's two million Venezuelans. Wow. But that's a great gesture. That's a great humanitarian gesture. Let's hope it succeeds. Do you see it as being motivated by humanitarian reasons? 
I think there are other considerations as well. Why should there not? I think it's a, a, an important gesture by Duque as well to the new US government to show that they're on the same page mm. as regards the importance of the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. But whatever the political background and noise behind it, I mean, that's significant and should be applauded. Absolutely. But it's also a token of just how bad the situation has got in Venezuela. Over 5 million migrants and refugees, a tremendous economic decline. I mean, the figures... The figures are, you know, hard to pin down, but that's 80% cumulative loss of GDP since 2013. I mean, imagine that you're whopping four-fifths of the value of the economy. It's been terrible. And of course, we've had this titanic political struggle over the last two years between uh, Nicolas Maduro's uh, ever more authoritarian government and the sort of opposition challenge from Juan Guaido, you know, backed by the United States, backed by a lot of Latin American countries aiming to topple Maduro, bring down Chavismo in, in, in Venezuela. And it didn't succeed. I mean, there, there, there's been a lot of struggle. There was an abortive coup. There was an attempt to bring humanitarian aid, force it across the border into the country. There was this very strange crackpot mercenary invasion, if you like, in May of last year, which totally failed. But at the end of the day, there were parliamentary elections. Not fair, it has to be said in December last year, and, and the government basically swept the board. So where, where do we stand now? Well, you know, the government seems to be in charge, the opposition very weak, uh, very demoralised, and Maduro firmly in power, but a new government in the United States, very much geared towards those humanitarian issues. And this promises change, because although there's no doubt that the Maduro government is at the root of many of the problems, those will not be solved by simply removing the government. There is too much root support, too much power in important institutions held by Chavismo to expect that you can just turn the page from one day to the next. You have to deal with the reality, whether you like it or not. And, and I think this is a realization which is now embraced in the United States. I think Latin American countries, even though they really opposed Maduro, are coming round to it. And so, you know, there could be a way forward. You could start to talk about very tactical sanctions relief from the United States. You could talk about bringing countries together that support Maduro, like China, like Russia and Cuba, that support Guaido or supported Guaido with, in a more multilateral format to talk about these differences. You know, there's a different atmosphere, a climate around Venezuela these days. But let's, let's also be honest. There is a problem and that is the Maduro government. It's won, in its opinion. It has broken the opposition challenge. And the hardliners, who obviously are crowing about their victory regularly, argue, well, why would we relax now and open up democratic space and allow the opposition to climb again? Because we know what they're like, we know what they do, and challenge us when we could just play more safely. So I think if the United States and others can remove the poison that has just coloured the whole treatment of Venezuela over the last few years and, and search to, you know, bring forward moderate points of view, reach some sort of multilateral agreement of some sort, possibly with a new UN envoy, you know, to address the issue. And also focus, of course, on the humanitarian situation and the COVID pandemic in particular, there could be progress. But I think for now, it's a question of rebuilding strategy towards the country. And is that poison the threat of intervention? I mean, is your sense that what we need in order to have this conversation is to take off the table any possibility of external intervention in Venezuela? 
Absolutely. And I think I've got to ground this in, in Latin American, you know, historical understandings. Mm, please. International intervention has a very bad name in Latin America in a way that I don't think it does in other regions of the world. What is it associated with in the minds of many people associated with coups in Chile and Argentina? It's associated, of course, with the attack on Panama. It's associated with all forms of skullduggery in Central American wars of the 1980s. The list goes on and is frequently repeated, it has to be said. And this story uh, really resonates in the Latin American left. So, you know, when Guaido, backed by Trump, you know, made the challenge, as it were, in early 2019, and and spoke of military options being on on the table, or you know, tried to invoke this this intervention. The reaction across much of Latin America was like, no, do not go there. And to be absolutely honest, even those countries which really backed Guaido to the hilt, and I'm including Colombia here, said no, no, that's yeah. not a possibility. And they and they seem to have sort of vetoed it. But the fact of the matter is that gave Maduro some breathing space. It gave him a sort of international platform to say, we are defending the sovereign nation. And within, very importantly, within Venezuela, that allowed him to strengthen his coalition, particularly with the military, because the US was banking on the military defecting. But the military, the very high command, I think, looked at their situation and think, well, we can stay with the devil we know, who's, you know, not doing great for the country, but pays us well and allows us a certain number of privileges. Or we could take this huge leap into the dark and go with what the United States is doing. And and I think a crucial test came early on when we had this attempt to bring humanitarian aid into the country. And uh, hundreds of Venezuelan troops and police defected in that moment. That was That was February in 2019. And instead of making a huge effort to hold these up as sort of, heroes who had rebelled against the the Maduro regime to give them privileges, to give them immediate residency, to make them examples, they were left to rot in hotels on the border for for a few weeks without any coordinated action by the supporters of Guaido whatsoever. And that, I think, gave a very clear indication that the the Guaido offensive, although, uh, you know, had its basis in democracy and law, like much of the Trump policy, it wasn't thought through. It wasn't mm. careful. It wasn't robust fundamentally. And from that moment on, there was no way the military were going to defect. Ivan, can, can we ask one more on Venezuela and let me play devil's advocate in a way? Mm. So let's say you, you remove the poison, as you say, you take regime change off the table and push towards something that's more of an accommodation, more of a compromise. Aren't you, in effect, trying to persuade a leader, a government that's backed by Russia, by China, by Cuba, to, to some degree at least, aren't you trying to persuade that leader to negotiate their way out of power? That essentially you're trying to still push for Maduro to accept reforms that you know, would likely mean that he loses the presidency. I mean, you've talked to people on both sides to sort of think through what a compromise might look like. But in the end, isn't that what it's about? And in the end, isn't that the main problem? You know, this is a great question, Richard. I mean, and it's a gamble. You're gambling, but with a decent hand of cards, I'd say. The idea, I think, is you're not going to see an instant solution. But there's a lot which the Venezuelan government wants at the moment. And there are a lot of people within Chavismo who don't like uh, the idea of trying to defend at all costs the longevity of a government when 90% of the population is in poverty. They didn't come to power to see Venezuela with 90% poverty rates. What was Chavez? Chavez was about social justice. He was about lifting up the poor, of giving them dignity, 
And it's something he did so effective verbally and materially in his first 10 years in power that he won election victory after election victory. You have a significant strand of Chavismo which believes in majority rule, i.e. winning elections. Now, those voices have been rather silenced over the last few years, obviously, with the, you know, with the hostility which has been directed at the government. But there is reason to believe, I think, that if you remove the poison, you will start to see those dissenters within Chavismo coming up with more considered opinions as to where the government should go, where economic policy should go. You will hopefully start to see a reduction in the levels of political repression. And then eventually Maduro will go largely because Chavismo believes that it is time for him to go, not because he's being ordered to go by the opposition and and the United States. And then that could offer a potential succession in which, you know, there are new considerations. But I think think that the best way to deal with Chavismo is to examine uh, with a magnifying glass and make other countries in Latin America understand its own contradictions. You cannot be a pro-poor movement defending the underclass and the downtrodden in society and preside over those poverty rates. It is not consistent with your original beliefs. And I think if we're able to do that, and, and, and obviously the US is a very powerful tool here in sanctions relief. I mean, it can really help turn around the Venezuelan economy if it wants to. I think if you maintain that focus, then there might be some chance of a breakthrough. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Ivan Briscoe. Ivan, let me draw your attention now to another major player in the region that you mentioned at the outset, Mexico. Mm. Heavily, heavily hit by COVID, obviously in a situation of pre-existing and ongoing violence in various parts of the country. To the extent that for Venezuela, your your prescription is both a regional one and one about the actions of the U.S. or the inaction of the U.S., as it were, where do you see Mexico and, and what are the big picture trends we should be looking for this year in Mexico? Well, Mexico, as you said rightly, has taken a terrible, terrible fall from COVID. I mean, we know that its its death toll is over 160,000, but that's believed to be an undercount, could be over 300,000. And Lopez Obrador is a canny politician. He has just come back from having COVID himself, seems to have recovered. He has his popularity through various different, you know, means of popular attraction. But it's we're talking 50 to 60 percent popularity, despite all that's happened. And, and, you know, he defies expectations in so many ways. He is in many ways the most unusual populist I think we can find in Latin America. Why? Well, he's from the left, clearly believes, and the biggest thrust of his government is towards, you know, building up the machinery of state support for the poor in certain regions of the country. Uh, yes, it's patronage-based, but it, it, it's a massive initiative. Uh, yet he had very good relations with Donald Trump. You know? I mean, having spoken about the need to care more for Central American migrants, he basically did Trump's bidding on Mexico's southern border, sealed it off. And he's very unwilling to spend money. I mean, he's he's almost Thatcherite in his, you know, he's willing to cut spending and, you know, embrace austerity, including during the COVID pandemic. I mean, 
there's very little support for businesses uh, who are hit by the pandemic and the lockdown in Mexico, which is the reason everybody's had to keep on going to work, which explains a little bit the nature of the epidemic there. So, I mean, he can play an important regional role because he's clearly so difficult to categorize. He can speak, spoke with Trump. He could definitely speak with Bolsonaro. He could definitely speak with other regional actors from all sides if he wished to, to bring a bit of you know, sense and moderation to Venezuela, he could help massively in that process. But the bottom line of Mexican policy, politics and governments is the relationship with the United States. And that is one which is difficult to see improving massively in the next few months. You will remember, of course, that López Obrador was very slow to recognize Biden's victory. And of course, we had this rather complex incident with a general arrested for drug trafficking, Mexican general in the United States, who was then handed back to Mexico, who then proceeded to basically absolve him of all charges and let him go free. I mean, the concern of Mexico is its relationship with the United States, migration, trade, and of course, security. Uh, and security cooperation. And so we just don't know how much the Biden administration is going to press López Obrador hard or whether it's going to seek a, a more consensual, easygoing relationship and maybe use that to get López Obrador to play a bigger diplomatic role uh, in the region. But that's a risk because Mexico remains an incredibly violent country. Uh, the COVID figures are terrible, but you know, alongside the COVID deaths, 35,000 dead in, in violence uh, last year, 70,000 or so disappeared over the last few years. You know, areas of violence such as Guanajuato and Michoacán, uh, states which remain you know, terribly affected, which are stuck in this you know, totally stagnant dynamic of a drug war, which can fundamentally never be won. So between its internal problems, its relationships with the United States, its regional reach, I mean, Mexico has a lot facing it at the moment. I mean, and we can only hope that it pulls through. Ivan, let's just talk a little bit more about that terrible violence that you talked about. I mean, Mexico has seen these phenomenal rates of violence, mm. seeing parts of the country almost like a like a war zone, as sort of different cartels, different criminal gangs have battled it out among themselves or with the security forces. We've written quite a bit recently about the sort of evolution of violence in Mexico, that because of this sort of kingpin strategy, essentially, that the government has adopted with international support, killing cartel leaders, mm. uh, cartels are sort of split from a small number of big cartels into many, many smaller groups that are still fighting these sort of brutal turf or, or, or drug wars, that actually levels of violence, despite the fact that a number of cartel leaders have been killed, level of, levels of violence in some ways getting worse. Do you want to talk about this about this a little bit and what this means for mm. the, the strategy that President López Obrador should adopt and has adopted? I mean, López Obrador came to power making the right sounds. In 2018, we had already seen, what, 12 years of very intensive drugs war, uh, murder rates, you know, edging up year after year, largely due to exactly what you've said, Richard, which is this fragmentation of groups. You know, 2006, when, you know, Felipe Calderón really stepped up the anti-crime you know, offensive at the time with the U.S. support. You had seven, eight, nine big cartels. You know, their names were known. You had the Gulf Cartel, the Sinaloa Cartel, the Felix Arellano, I mean, uh, the, the, and, the, and a few schisms around there. The Zetas, uh, obviously connected to the Gulf Cartel. But these have now, in our estimates, I mean, the analysis which we've done based on like social media and blogs and, you know, the communications from these groups, we're talking about 200 
groups now active in the country. And they're obviously much smaller. I mean, they're not a Chapoku's man with his, you know, cohorts of vehicles and, and his extreme power. They are smaller, but they're more focused and they're more diverse. I mean, it's fascinating, I think, when you when you look at Mexico, it's not just the number of groups, but what they're involved in. I mean, formally, we all assumed that it was all about cocaine, wasn't it? Cocaine produced in, largely in Colombia, shipped to Mexico and, uh, and got across the border. But now we're not, we're talking about methamphetamine, we're talking about fentanyl, which has been a major thing. We're talking about fuel siphoning, and we're talking about increasingly the extortion rackets exerted over legal commodity chains like the production of avocados, production of other you know crops and goods, mm. mining in the region. There is a banquet of illicit incomes across Mexico, which has you know given criminal activity. Now, okay, there are lots of groups. The groups come, the groups go. They die. They sometimes reemerge. But the basic sustenance of illicit activity is more solid than ever. And this is the problem. You know, the problem with the, the strategy of the war of drugs, as you said, the kingpin strategy caused the groups to split. Focusing on drugs caused the groups to diversify. And at no stage was there a really concerted effort to make sure the state was not complicit with crime. And that's the underlying problem, because especially at the local level, the state is a criminal actor. Ivan, can I follow that up with, with another question? I mean, if you look at the cocaine transit routes from essentially South America up to the US, you know, they've sort of left a trail of destruction across mm. much of Central America, much of Mexico. And the violence isn't only because of the drug transits, but that's a big part of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you look at the heroin transit routes from Afghanistan to Europe, now Af- Afghanistan's obviously suffered this, this decades-long terrible conflict, but the routes themselves don't see that level of violence. Why has the cocaine roots, why have these caused such a phenomenal level of violence in in these countries? Is it the war on drugs, more violent efforts to disrupt transit routes? Is it more competition for the control of drug routes? How would you explain why these countries have suffered such horrible levels of violence? You know, Richard, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to beg to differ on that one, because I think there's a change which has occurred. Let's talk about Colombia here. Coca and cocaine have been intimately associated with the worst violence this country has ever seen. Let's be absolutely clear about that, whether we're talking Pablo Escobar in the 1990s, whether we're talking the paramilitaries in the first years of the of the noughties, if you like, whether we're talking about the FARC over the course of decades from the 1980s onwards have drawn on the drug trade for their violence. And I mean, in the case of Escobar, he battled the state. I mean, he led a campaign of terrorist violence in this country, uh, which is extraordinary if you actually read about it nowadays. It's how did this happen? But the long-term effect of the, you know, the attempts to clamp down on drug-related activity are, are huge. I mean, the Colombian police has done an extraordinary job of reducing the life expectancy of drug kingpins to a, a matter of months or just over a year, if you like. They break up these actors particularly quickly. There's constant eradication going on. And then, of course, in Mexico and Central America, we've seen all sorts of tools used against drug cartels and drug organizations from the kingpin strategy, extradition, combat, interdiction at sea, the, the, the works. What has happened? Well, I think what we find nowadays is the modern drug trade is a more professional operation, especially in the, in the key international trafficking routes a more business-like operation. In El Salvador, where does the violence come from? It doesn't come from drugs. It comes from gangs running extortion rackets. 
It's a little bit more in Honduras, yes, a little bit more in Guatemala, but I think when you break down the violence in those countries, it's largely for other criminal reasons and a reflection of general impunity. Now, drug money has definitely you know, exacerbated all these problems. But I don't think we should look at cocaine in particular as the source of most violence, not even in Mexico nowadays, not in Central America and not in Colombia. It is associated with violence. It is associated with the designs and the appetites and, the, and, and you know, of violent armed actors. But I would say that in some way over the last 20 years, alongside the drug war, we've seen a gradual spreading of the mechanisms of criminal violence, the use of criminal violence and the circuits of impunity which protect criminal organizations to a host of other activities. So I think we could almost say that coca and cocaine are, you know, are the seed of many problems, but I think it's gone beyond that. So obviously, I would argue that we need to revise the policies towards coca and cocaine. Now, you're never going to stop huge profits obviously being made unless there's a change in the global prohibition regime, unless there's a change in the way that cocaine is treated. And I understand that's very complicated. It raises a lot of issues about public health in user markets in the United States and Europe. So, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any simple answers in that respect. But when it comes to coca and cocaine, the root, as it were, let's focus on the coca farmers in Colombia, the most vulnerable part of the whole process. Let's focus on uh, stopping those big shipments moving about in large vessels through important ports. And obviously, let's talk about the public health issues in the final user markets and whether, you know, there is some way of, as it were, removing the dangers of addiction. You mentioned earlier the Latin American attitude towards intervention, a real sense that the region can come together to agree that foreign external intervention is not acceptable and needs to be prevented. I'm wondering what your sense is of the capacity for major regional players to increase multilateral cooperation this year and moving ahead to address some of the concerns that you bring up. Is there a possibility for Mexico, other major actors to work in partnership with other countries in order to uh, address COVID and other concerning elements? It's a grim scenario at the moment. The, the regional organizations have been battered over the last few years because of Venezuela. Fundamentally, and the division in the organization of American states over Venezuela was massive. And that also hit Mercosur, which is the customs union, to the south. Unasur fundamentally no longer exists. That was, you know, for 10 years or so, an incredibly important format for bringing Latin American countries together. It's a very low point. But on this note, I think the United States plays a really important role. When it comes to, you know, the gathering together of countries in Latin America, the U.S. has always been terribly important. Obviously, there was that exception around the time that Chavez was in his pomp and there were initiatives coming from Latin America, but they never really had the buy-in from all countries, particularly those which were run from the right. Uh, whereas the United States, if it, if it can somehow emphasize that need for partnership, and here's a very difficult ask of the United States as well, can it emphasize partnership and multilateralism without immediately seeking its own national security advantage in the process, then I think you have a good base. The problem to a degree, you know, to a large degree in the regional organization is that Latin America is the country is obsessively sovereign. 
they're now heavily politically polarized. And as I said, the one country which could bring them together tends to look at regional organizations as a means to get its own way. So if we can start to change that dynamic, and if we could have regional leaderships, maybe Mexico in an ideal world, maybe Argentina, but it's got a lot on its plate at the moment, I have to say, um, countries like that who can sort of, you know, say, no, we will be setting the agenda, but we are looking to you in the north for support for that agenda, but you will not determine it. And then I think we can start to see something more, something more on the front you're suggesting. Because at the end of the day, countries like Mexico are very important in the multilateral system. I mean, outside Latin America, within Latin America, it doesn't work the same way. Ivan, let me ask one last question and maybe to see if there's one sort of positive story we can end on. Brilliant. And that's uh, Bolivia. Mm, absolutely. At the end of 2019, Evo Morales in Bolivia was nudged out by the military. There was an election that at the time was seen as rigged. And a replacement government came in, an interim government that was extremely inflammatory, partisan. They threatened to overturn the reforms that Morales, the reforms you talked about earlier, that Morales put in place to help the indigenous and discrimination. And it really looked as though Bolivia was going through sort of quite a nasty, divisive period. Then some months ago, there was a new election. Lucho Arce, a former minister under Morales, widely respected leader, came to power, everyone accepted the results and seems to have turned a page on, you know, what could have been quite an unpleasant crisis. Is that right? Is there any hope that we can draw from that for other countries? I think what happened in Bolivia is a great tribute to, to moderation, to international mediation, which played a great role, and to the decisive role which a legitimate election can play in resolving political conflict. I mean, yes, we had a year with a very incendiary, aggressive interim government with very limited legitimacy, to be honest, which came in after a very badly handled election by a president who was past his, past his date, really, who should have given up power earlier, but clung on to it. So there were significant errors on all sides, on the side of mass, on the side of the indigenous progressive movement, on the side of the, uh, the more conservative uh, I hate to use the, the expression white, I'd say sort of European descendants which exist in Bolivia, because Bolivia is uh, fundamentally an ethnic, there is a politico-ethnic uh, conflict which has to be processed through democracy. And that makes it very difficult because both sides are prone to deny the legitimacy of the results. So it's incredibly difficult to get to an election which everyone accepts. But that's what we eventually saw in, in October. There was a lot of work by the European Union, by the church, by the UN to bring the groups together to talk about how to handle a proper election which everyone would accept. The vote count was very slow in the end as a result. It took somewhat days, but it was uh, indisputable at the end. And, and importantly, I think at the end of all this, you have a president, as you said, Richard Arce, who is aware of the need for moderation. You know, Bolivia stood next to the abyss in November of 2019. There was violence on the streets. There were two massacres carried out by security forces. And we've seen previously in Bolivia, I remember very well, the, the, the outbreak of violence in 2003, terrible repression, which just leads to such resentment and grievance in society because it touches upon some really deep historical roots relating to the entire Spanish conquest of the Americas in some fundamental way. So they cannot be resolved easily. And so I think it's really important you have a democratic election, you have a legitimate election, and you have a president 
president who's come to power and realizes he cannot take extremely strident positions. He has to reach everyone in Bolivia. And that's that's a tribute to Latin American democracy. That's democracy working at its best. And it's really to be hoped that you can see that in all other Latin American countries. Ivan, that's a great note to end on. So, I mean, glad we've managed to end on something positive. And really, let's hope that, you know, we can see something like that play out in Venezuela over the coming years as well. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's the way forward for Venezuela. And, uh, you know, let's hope that however populist a politician is, that they understand that they have to govern for the whole country. And that's vital. And let's hope, above all, that Latin America can embrace public services. I just hope that when we come out of COVID, that health, education, support, infrastructure, these are the priorities and that all the political elites get behind them and that there's progress made with as little corruption as possible. As usual, it's been an extremely rich discussion. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed it greatly. And uh, I would say do it again sometime, but then the listeners might object. So you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ivan. Thanks so much. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Well, Richard, I think another wonderful tour de force, both of the region and of a number of conceptual deep themes and issues that are urgent for various countries in Latin America. Let's uh, bring this episode to a close. We would invite our listeners to leave us a rating or review. And as always, a big thank you to the Crisis Group team responsible for putting this podcast together. Have a good week, everyone. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.